this episode of the Afghan Eye podcast, Suzanne Schroeder and Ahmed Walid Kakar will be reviewing Barnett Rubin's uh, latest book called What Everyone Needs to Know About Afghanistan. But before we do that, I have to share something with you. Leading scholar on Afghanistan and former diplomat Barnett Rubin happens to be also quite an artist. He has actually recorded a rap song about his career as a diplomat and specialist on Afghanistan. And I managed to get my hands on the recording of that rap song. So here is Barnett Rubin and his nephews in his rap debut recorded in 2013. Surfing, tweeting, or YouTubing. You ain't never heard rhymes like Barney Rubens. Tired of war, of wasting gore. He jams and even slams to save blood and your treasure. As he proposes peaceful measures, groove with the track as the root gets fresher. I've been away for a long time. Now I'm not only back, but I'm here to rhyme. So bust a move, cause I am too. Back on the block, portraying the dude. So hey young world, ask the senior advisor. How did the dude teach you to be wiser? Teach me the right way, so my eyesight may See that path that leads to a brighter day So if you're ready to walk with the talk, never fear Cause I'm back on the block, 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 block Let me kick my credentials Senior advisor on South Central Asia Home of the body bag You wanna die? Wave the wrong color flag No telling why Way before UBL I slammed and jammed around that little part of hell I used to criticize, never play down You contradict, verbal spray down But I was lucky cause I never caught the hard time I was blessed with the skill to bust a dope rhyme All my homies quit or caught the foggy Living jet lagged, wake up groggy Living that life that we thought was it Bootlegging, get the text flipped I'm not gonna lie to you cause I don't lie I kick thick game with my nephews, why? Cause I'm back on the block, I got my life back So I school the fools without the change track I get static on the style of my technique Complexity, the blatant way in which I speak But the dude knew policy's no kitty game You don't know the dude, Richard's his first name He told me, Rube, keep doing what you're doing, man Don't give a damn if the line don't understand You let him tell you what to say and what to write Your whole career will be over by tomorrow night As rap from your heart, not the sweet Let's rap with me and be our Ruben tweet. The dude was deaf, no doubt, no bait and switch. The man could roll with S. Milosevic. Back. Back on the block. Back. Back on the block. Back on the block. So we can knock talking real. Analyzing facts and even truth shock. Back. Back on the block. I'm on the low side, I'm on the high side Secret no foreign, TSSCI side I'm getting read into the compartment 
The dude took me outside the department, fly Dubai, Kabul and Islamabad, brief in the skiff, piss out in the tiny pod, great wall, bosporous, peaceful and prosperous, new silk road dart through the mountainous heart of Asia, the brotherlands, back in the motherland, flip to the sit room where agency brother mans, all in the small group to transfer detainees, erase another trace of Bush and Cheney's, what's that, yellow flannel, Steel de Queasy, work the back channel, then chill out the DC, get on up with the PC, put the suite in the lock, but tears came to my eyes when he read out that sock, back, back on the block. believed a better future is possible for Afghanistan, for Pakistan, and the wider region. He once observed, and I quote, in every war of this sort, there's always a window for people who want to come in from the cold. There has to be a place for them. Those were his words, and that is the policy of the United States. Back up and give the sister room to let diplomacy bloom To whom it may concern or consume As I reminisce the mistrust that exists before this But now we brought about a twist Cause I remember reading of our people bleeding Fought for knavery, killed for bravery We should have got our policy much faster Mitigate an avoidable disaster I was once told by the dude the knowledge is food To feed the fish To conclude, my insight enables me to enlighten the rigid of mind and I put him in flight. So I redraft, pre-clear, and defend, re-litigate, re-clear, and resend instructions that should have long gone by no dis Decisions already made by Portis interagency messed up. The IC dressed up lies perpetrated as truth, and it left us confused. But I've seen it all before, from Babylon to the Third World War. I'm only one man, a humanoid entity. Back on the block, I reclaim my identity. The dude, 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 dude. Back, back on the block. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the 18th episode of the Afghan Eye podcast. I am Sangar Paikar. And I'm Ahmed Walid Kakar. And on this episode, we have a guest, Suzanne Schroeder. And uh, Suzanne and Walid will be reviewing Barnett Rubin's book called What Everybody Needs to Know About Afghanistan. But before we start reviewing the book, first of all, uh, Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be on it. Uh, we are honored to have you as a guest. And um, as we've spoken uh, already, we want to review a very important book that has been published recently uh, by uh, Barnett Rubin. Uh, before we go into the book, uh, can you tell us about yourself, uh, uh, about your background and what got you sort of involved in um, st studying and researching Afghanistan? Well, I've been doing that for about 10 years now. I have a liberal arts background academically, and it was never quite the right fit. And in 2011, I woke up on, I think it was May 1st, and found out that bin Laden was dead. I think it was May 2nd. May 2nd. 
<laughs> and I turned on CNN, which at the time was a little bit different than it is now. By by that night, I was ordering books. Uh, and in July, I read Lawrence Wright's The Looming Tower. And upon finishing it, I decided I was going to spend the rest of my life researching the Afghan Taliban, no matter what. By September, I was taking a university class on counterinsurgency, and I am still continuing on this possibly futile mission. But it's, I love it, and it's very enjoyable. Uh, you have also uh, published about Afghanistan. Um, I think it was for a War on the Rocks and uh, Divergent Opinions or uh, Divergent Options. Yes. Can you tell us about uh, what you have written? In 2014, I interviewed the British journalist Ben Anderson, who wrote a book called No Worse Enemy about the British in Helmand province. And he was a, a very good interview subject. Um, he also made a film called This Is What Winning Looks Like, which was uh, from Vice uh Vice TV at that point, uh, which exposed uh, the trying to say this in a, a kind of a, a better, a good description. It exposed the sexual abuse of boys on okay. U.S. bases by some of our Afghan allies. And it finally got the attention of, of Hamid Karzai. So that was an important film. And again, his work is, is very, very interesting and very diverse. Um, so I would recommend that your listeners check out Ben Anderson's work, and especially that film, This Is What Winning Looks Like. And then I've written a few... I guess what I would call policy papers at divergent options. And uh, when you started uh, uh, basically uh, trying to get a better understanding of Afghanistan, uh, what was your impression uh, in 2011 of Afghanistan? Well, I was fortunate to find... Mullah Zaif's autobiography, My Life with the Taliban, which it, he was released from Guantanamo and it was sort of heard around Kandahar where there were two European researchers living, Felix Kuhn and Alex Strickland-Linschotten, that there was this manuscript and they were able to get in touch with Mullah Zaif edited and translated, and it was published by Hearst Publishers. Um, I'm, I've got it right <laughs> Actually, Columbia, I'm sorry, Columbia University Press. And it's still really the first, I think the first book that came out with a voice, a Taliban voice that 
chronicled the history of the movement. So that was a really good introduction. And I think it helped establish a more critical type of reading for me that you really have to evaluate, of course, sources and how polemical writing about any conflict is. So you you always need to, to filter. And I, I think, that, but I, I mean, there's there have been so many really good books written um, and then a lot of not so great ones. But if anyone has not read that, it's, it's essential. Yes, I agree. And I, I, interestingly, I remembered Mala Zaif from the couple of weeks after 9-11. He was still appearing on CNN. And they, you know about the anthrax scare that was in no way related to Islamic terrorism. It was a domestic terrorist incident. And he was on CNN and he was asked, were the Taliban involved in sending the sending of anthrax? And he started to laugh and he said, I'll never forget this. We don't even know what anthrax is. And I I was sitting there. I said, you know, that guy's telling the truth, whatever else <laughs> that he's, he's telling the truth about that. So I had remembered Mullah Zaif from that, from his appearance and that, uh, so I was very interested then to hear his story. By the way, uh, this uh, anecdote reminded me of something. Uh, um, I'm not really sure if it was Mullah Zaif, I think so, because I was quite young when this happened. It was a very long time ago. In, um, I, I, uh, Suzanne, you might remember in the late 90s, during the Clinton administration, Hillary Clinton became uh, suddenly very involved in women's rights in Afghanistan. Yes. So, uh, uh, she was... Uh, arguing that the Taliban are oppressing Afghan women and there was an op-ed written by uh, a Taliban diplomat and I'm not really 100% sure if I uh, remember it correctly it was Mullah Zaif and he has he, he wrote somewhere that look uh, Mrs. Clinton you're arguing that Afghan women are oppressed, but your own husband is oppressing you by cheating with uh, Monica Lewinsky. So uh, uh, why don't you first take care of wow, your they, own they rights went that before? Far. <laughs> it was like very comical uh, incident because uh, um, I was young and there were these old Afghan politicians, refugees here in the Netherlands, and they were all saying, like, look at these village mullahs with their audacity. How can they say something like this? <laughs> I, I will mention there was a New York Times piece as well in the late 90s. Uh, it might have been, I think, John Burns, who was in Afghanistan at the time and sort of revealed the Taliban to the West, 
where it was International Women's Day. This was probably after the UN sanctions. And he said, women are walking on the street eating ice cream and the Taliban are handing out roses. Now, is this just for Western consumption or are they really changing? <laughs> but all these things, you know, are in, it's so important to look back to. Um, and yeah, we were discussing that a little bit before, but yeah. Um, I, I do remember that though. I do. So, uh, moving on to uh, the book, um, the book was published recently. Uh, we spoke uh, before, uh, uh, right before the book was being published, and um, we agreed to uh, uh, read the book. And you and Ahmed Walid, both of you have read the book. I haven't. So I'm going to be asking you two questions about the book so that you can maybe uh, give us an insight of what the book is about. Uh, first of all, my uh, question for Suzanne is, uh, uh, what draws you to reading this book in, uh, in particular? Well, I'm going to give just a little introduction about the author. Barnett R. Rubin is Senior Fellow and Director of the Afghanistan Regional Project, which is housed in the Center on International Cooperation at New York University. He served in the Obama administration as Senior Advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, and in the United Nations as Senior Advisor to the U.N. Special Representative of the Secretary General for Afghanistan. He has written many books, including The Fragmentation of Afghanistan and Afghanistan from the Cold War through the War on Terror. His knowledge base is probably one of the, the deepest out there. Uh, his work has been consistently... Serious. I would. I would. I want to use the word serious because I think he has so much knowledge. He avoids making statements that the kind of statements that get easily taken up by the media, but really don't give any further understanding. And I, in a. In, in a minute, after Walid speaks, I do, I want to just mention something that happened last week, and then some information in his book, just the way something that is current is related to something that occurred some years ago. Yeah, so the book is... Uh very relevant at this current uh, uh, situation in Afghanistan because, uh, as you said, uh, his knowledge is very deep. I think it was uh, Steve Cole, the author of Ghost Wars and director at S, who uh, called Barnett Rubin the one-man CIA because he has so much knowledge. So obviously, uh, whatever he says in this book 
is going to be very influential for what is going on right now, the Afghan peace process, the negotiations, and it may also, if you all, I think you both agree that this book will also serve as a very uh, valuable asset for the uh, incoming uh, Biden administration in America. Am I correct? Absolutely, yeah. yes. I would agree with that. I would basically sort of describe the book, uh, Afghanistan, what everyone needs to know. Uh, I should just mention this just for fun. I read a review on it of it earlier today where it said that apparently what everyone needs to know is the usual colonial crap. I'm going to throw this in the junk. But in any case, in any case... In any case, I would disagree with it. And the reason I think the book is important, uh, I'll get into the sort of the really important points that it highlights uh, some of the points of critique that I have. But what the book is essentially, uh, essentially is doing is it's, it's um, attempting to frame the discussion on Afghanistan for a post-war on terror reality. Okay, so what it's doing is that over the last... 19 years and whatever, you know, Sangara and I, we're at the Afghan I, we've always been sort of described ourselves as putting forth a counter narrative. And the reason for that is that if the narrative were true, what is happening right now would not be happening. Okay. So clearly, uh, there are some parts of the puzzle or many parts of the puzzle that are missing. What this book does, uh, largely is it attempts to address uh, what Afghanistan is, the gaps in knowledge surrounding Afghanistan, uh, you know, it, it attempts to widen the perspective of the reader on Afghanistan away from the ideological tropes that we've heard, the unquestionable realities of the last 19 or may years or maybe even longer. So that being said, it doesn't, you know, any academic work will be flawed. It will have points with which anyone can disagree with or find to be wrong or can critique. But essentially, that is what the book is. It, there's a there's a lot of information in there. There's a lot of uh, deep level political analysis in there that is uh, that makes logical sense. Uh, you, people can you know people are entitled to their opinions and whatever, uh, but your opinions need to follow a sound, consistent rationale and make logical sense. A lot of what is said in this book makes sense, and I'll just reiterate one more time: if the narrative were true, what is happening right now wouldn't be happening. So clearly, we're either misinterpreting what's happening right before our eyes, which means we're all schizophrenic and hallucinating, or or what we're being told is false. And yeah, the, I'll, that's what I would frame the purpose of the book. Walid, you're <laughs> very, very uh, powerful uh, introduction. Walid, thank you. <laughs> stated. Very well stated. Last week... President-elect Biden announced his cabinet picks, some of his cabinet picks, and his choice for UN ambassador is Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who said, and I'm sure you heard it, multilateralism is back, diplomacy is back, America is back. Now, the multilateralism comment, okay, reassure the allies, you know, in Europe, largely, <laughs> And that's fine. Um, it makes perfect sense to say that. But I had, when she said diplomacy is back, as is documented in the book, 
in November of 2010, there, the Obama administration cooperated with Richard Holbrook's efforts to speak with Tayyab Aga, who is, I, I don't know what his official title is with the Taliban. He had been Mullah Omar's secretary, although he's, he's quite young. Um, but I, I don't know in 2010 whether he had an official title. But anyway, so that initial outreach formed the base of all these tentative meetings, tentative discussions, which have led to the meetings in Qatar about setting up a timeline for troop withdrawal, and now to intra-Afghan talks, which aren't going so great, although there may have been a breakthrough in the last few days, but... It was started in the Obama administration and was continued by the Trump administration and is a very good example of how much time goes into diplomacy, what an involved process it is. And I'm sure Linda Thomas-Greenfield is very aware of that. But I think that's one of the things about the book that, it, it deals very much, I think, with realities and tries to avoid maybe some what I might call mythology that arises. Something more uh, relevant is also the that before we uh, switch to from topic is that uh, Walid said that. Uh, one of the critiques was that it's another colonialist crap. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of. Lit- I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take an internet. I wouldn't take an internet comment to be critique. But okay. yeah, yeah. But you know, a criticism. Let's uh, say. There is something that I want to address here: is um, a lot of literature published in the last two decades about Afghanistan is written by western authors okay now the problem with that is is that western authors have their own uh, biases but they're also their um, lack of uh, awareness of certain nuances this is this is just uh, one of the problems why um, when policymakers when uh, uh, politicians uh, consult scholars or when they read books they are informed by people who are number one they have their biases and number two they have their um, uh, weaknesses because they are not from Afghanistan they are not Afghans they don't speak the language uh, they don't know much about our uh, inter-Afghan relations. So as a result, you get uh, uh, government policy being uh, informed by people who are uh, just as ignorant as the politicians or and the policymakers. Uh, so uh, this is why it's very important to have uh, literature produced about Afghanistan in the Anglosphere in, in the Western uh, society, uh, uh, 
by Afghans. Afghans need to tell the West about their country. Uh, this is what I believe, and this is why I always encourage Afghans to write. Uh, however, this book does something, and uh, uh, from what I've uh, understood so far, and from what I know of uh, Barnett Rubin, is that he tries his best to not fit that particular description of a typical Western uh, scholar. Uh, and, and, and this is, to his credit, you know, he has a lot of credibility because he has done a lot of effort. But still, you, you, you see that the book has also a few other authors. And uh, can you guys share your views about those other authors of this book? Um, I would share my thoughts with regard to the chapter written on the Taliban by um, Antonio, is it Giustosi or Gustosi? Gustosi, okay. Oh, Giustosi, sorry. So I, so with regard to the chapter written by Antonio Gustosi, you know, obviously everyone knows Antonio Gustosi, sort of a Taliban expert, the author of the Taliban at war. I think he's a visiting fellow at King's College as well, uh, from which I graduated. Uh, but in any case, he's um, the chapter is essentially telling the story of the Taliban and how it sort of metastasized into an insurgency after 2001, the different sort of breaking points, the watersheds and whatever. But it's not really referenced. Um, and someone could say, OK, well, Antonio Giustosi has like sources on the ground and whatever. And I, I concede that point. But the point the point that I'm making is that there's literally no way to verify some of the claims that he's making so for example he says that in 2016 um the then taliban amir uh mullah akhtar mansur ran away to iran okay because uh sirajuddin haqqani was he was scared of sirajuddin haqqani okay who was supported by pakistan and saudi arabia and iran was supporting mullah akhtar mansur okay then he's also saying that Mawlawi Hebatullah as well has also fled to Iran from um, from uh, Quetta or Afghanistan or whatever, once again, because um, Sirajuddin Haqqani is scaring him. There's a claim that uh, Mawlawi Hebatullah came under really strong criticism from the Taliban Rahbari Shura or the leadership council in Quetta for fighting against other groups like Daeshi groups in Zabul. Like... The, the question that I'm asking here is, how can I take your word? Like, this is an academic book, okay? It's an academic work. How can I verify this? The, the answer is that I can't. Uh, the story, don't get me wrong, phenomenally written, really absorbs the reader. It's a really good story. But that's the problem. It's a story. I agree with you completely. And I will, I will offer up something like a defense, possibly. I, I do think you can't, if you're going to make those claims, they have to be supported. Yeah. That That is the basis of, of academic research. What I think that the author intended was to go to experts, which is why for example, he went to David Mansfield in the chapter on 
counter narcotics and opium production, who is, I think what Mansfield's work is so dense, so filled with research and statistics that when journalists are writing about opium, they don't even try to dive in because it's just too much to digest. So I think the author tried to get experts whose work he was familiar with, who had produced, you know, respected work in the past. It, it, it Again, it's a legitimate critique. And I don't know why in discussions with editors, they didn't stress you need more documentation. Yeah. Uh, I would also, with regard to the chapter of Antonio and Justosi as well, so the image that's sort of being drawn here is that the Taliban are sort of a disparate insurgency uh, made up of different factions, and those different factions in turn are supported by uh, different foreign patrons, Okay. And uh, so, for example, Mullah Akhtar Mansur was close with the Iranians. That's why he fled to Iran, uh, because relations with the ISI and Haqqani, Sirajuddin Haqqani, got bad. Uh, and Sirajuddin Haqqani, obviously, uh, as is commonly believed, the Haqqani, um, I don't want to call them a faction, but let's just say um, Operational Command Southeast Afghanistan, okay, where the Haqqanis operate, is... Uh, they're rumored to be pretty uh, closely tied to the ISI. There's actually a very good book written about this called Fountainhead of Jihad, um, right? Uh, that, that goes really deep into this and looks at the role that the Haqqanis play, not just in Afghanistan, but also in Pakistan's tribal areas. But, you know, coming back to the central point, it's that if Mawlawi Hebatullah and Mullah Akhtar Mansur are supported by the Iranians, Okay, and the Haqqanis are supported by the Pakistanis and the Saudis. Why are the Taliban still? I mean, this is a controversial topic. People are going to say, "Oh no, there are you know divided insurgency." There's not one Taliban. There are hundreds of Taliban factions and whatever. But for all intents and purposes, we can see that there's a united front. Even as we're being told, they are supported by foreign powers who are at each other's each other's throats. Okay, um, that's one thing. That's a, that's a circle that I cannot square, or neither can the or, the author of the chapter, uh, for that matter. That would be another critique. I think you heard Ruben's comment in a very recent Russia Today interview, where he said, "Just completely, uh, the Hakani network is part of the Taliban." Yeah. I mean, they have. You know, they've, um, of course, the word escapes me. Uh, allegiance to the emir. What is the the, the, the oath? The oath. Yeah. Of yeah. Um, I, I, I think there are a few ways to maybe explain. There, there are two parallel arguments that are always being made. The Taliban is fragmented. It's barely holding together. The, the field commanders are completely out of touch, especially with the political office in Doha. 
the usual stuff, basically. Yes. But then we also get from maybe work that's a little more on the academic rather than journalistic side. They are a cohesive group. Without cohesion, they wouldn't have lasted for, well, they, you know, they ref- the rep- <laughs> they reformed in, what, 2004? Yeah, something About, like that. You know, the first initial starting of, of reforming um, as an insurgency. So, you know, 15 years, would they have lasted that long if they were it had all these internal uh, uh, cracks going on that could yeah. not be repaired? So... It's 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 strange that you have such opposing ideas that contradict each other. Yeah, so I mean that that would be I would agree a hundred percent. And it's almost like when you listen to uh, not so much the Americans, of course, since they've started to over the last decade or so, like you correctly mentioned, since the Obama administration, there's been a greater realization on the American side that. A political settlement is needed, but when you do listen to the the guys in Kabul, um, there is you do almost sense that they do genuinely believe almost that, like you mentioned, the Taliban are fragmented. They're on the verge of collapse. They're not cohesive. Um, you know, there's mad massive uh, infighting, and you hear it. Um, and usually, like for example, it's. Defense Minister Asadullah Khalid saying, you know, we're going to go on an offensive position and we're going to completely destroy them. Alhamdulillah, uh, Muhib, I remember once said when he first was appointed National Security Advisor, give us six months and we'll break the back of the Taliban. And everyone laughs at this stuff, rightfully so, I may add. It is because that obviously didn't materialize. But you do get the sense that there is a, a market for the idea that the Taliban are about to collapse. There is a market there, and because there's a market, some people do genuinely believe that. But like we correctly meant, you, you know, like we've mentioned already, if that was true, we wouldn't be where we are right now. So that would be my critique of one of the critiques of the chapter that I have. Um, sorry, one of the critiques of the book that I have. Um, the other, so there was one thing that I did notice. It was that uh, in the chapter, Suzanne, on... um, So for everyone that hasn't read the book, there's a chapter essentially regarding the negotiations and the Bonn Agreement in which there was the uh, sort of a a plan formulated for an interim government being formed and then a constitutional government. And in the interim government uh, being formed, there was uh, the possibility that there could be a re-sort of... uh, the monarchy could be instituted once again. There was a demand for it. There was an appetite for it. Um, now, Ruben writes that Jawad Zarif, who was the Iranian envoy to Bonn at the time to take part in these negotiations, opposed language uh, that could potentially hint at the return of a monarchy. Okay, now Jawad Zarif since then is now the Iranian foreign minister. Um but Ruben doesn't explain at all why the Iranians uh, would prefer that Afghanistan does not go back to a monarchy as 
you know, was quite a popular idea. Did you notice that, Suzanne? I may have, I, I probably did notice it while reading it, but I see with you pointing it out, it's a question that needs to be asked. Yeah, it's because uh, I mean that that's a very that's a very um, interesting point because every single time we speak about the last nineteen years in Afghanistan, we always talk about Pakistan. You cannot ignore Pakistan's role, okay? But as someone that uh, also wants to look at the role of other neighbors and not just neighbors, regional countries, Iran critique its role, analyze what its policy is. I want to know, for example, why would the Iranian regime be opposed to the restoration of a monarchy so much to uh, so much so that to the extent that it's opposed to the use of ambiguous language that may indicate it what would you say Sangar? uh personally i think that uh when you are writing a book or anything uh any information that you add um that may have some consequences need to be uh, elaborated. You need to elaborate. Why, why are you putting this information in there? Uh, now, why is this relevant? Because uh, some of these issues uh, have had a major effect in how uh, Afghanistan's current situation has developed over the last two decades. So therefore, um, the, the role of Iran, what the designs and intentions of Iran are, are very important. Uh, uh, only recently, uh, Barnett Rubin has written a very lengthy piece on War on the Rocks about Iran's relationship yeah. with uh, uh, Taliban. I really enjoyed reading it. It was really uh, informative. Uh, and it also exposes this very ambiguous uh, stance of Iran towards Afghanistan is like on the other hand on the on the one hand they support the Taliban on the other hand they support groups that oppose the Taliban so whenever any information of that nature is mentioned in the book uh, the author needs to clarify it uh, he needs to elaborate on it so that uh, the reader gets a better perspective of what is being said uh, so that's my take on it but, but you know, as observers, okay, what would you speculate the reason would be for Iran being opposed to the restoration of the Barakzai monarchy? <laughs> well, I I would say, and I'm I'm sort of, I'm looking for what you referred to, um, and I'm seeing about the language, um, and okay. What was it called? The Northern Group. This was yeah, a, yeah. that favored the the return of a monarch. No, the so there was the Northern Group. It, I think it was called the United Front at the time as well. Um, and there was the Rome Group, and the Rome Group. The Rome Group was headed by um, nominally by Zahir Shah, but um, yeah, there was a bit of a dispute over language, and essentially, the Iranians as Ruben states, were opposed to any sort of monarchical language. So I want to sort of get your perspectives as to what, why you think the Iranians would have had that stance. Do you think if the monarchy had been restored, there would have been greater stability? I, 
I mean, I'm going out on a limb here. Uh, this is my personal opinion. I personally think, yes, uh, it would have, uh, because um, the people that were assembled after 2001 had a, you know, had a severe deficit of trust and credibility amongst Afghans, uh, all of them. Um, and I think that the monarchy at that time was not tainted. In fact, I think there was a bit of a nostalgia, uh, you know, for the good old days where things weren't perfect, but they were peaceful. What would you say, Sam? I would say that uh, I can understand the sentiment that the monarchy was not really involved in the fighting in the last 40 years. So if the monarchy would have been reinstalled, um, we would have a leadership of some sorts, maybe symbolic, uh, that wasn't like, uh, it didn't have hands tainted in blood. Okay. However, I would say that it would be very impractical. I don't really think it's possible to invade a country, uh, overthrow any sort of regime or anything that is there, and then install a monarchy in the 21st century. I don't see that happening. Uh, furthermore, uh, while the king uh, may not have been personally involved in all the fighting in the last 40 years, his regime, his government, prior to the revolution and everything, uh, was maybe peaceful, but it wasn't perfect. It had its problems, no, of course and not. those problems have created an environment that had led to the uh, chaos that we are currently finding ourselves in. That's a one problem that he couldn't really solve back then, and I don't think that he or the, 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 the royalist elite were able to create order and stability after 2001. Uh, they didn't have a wide spread na national support group uh, and there was no uh, organized uh, movement in Afghanistan of the uh, royalists that doesn't exist anymore so I don't think that that would be uh, something I don't think that that would be practical and now why why would Iran oppose it though well it is inspired me to go full conspiratorial here. Yes. And say, oh, okay. <laughs> please, please. And say, okay, massive homeland attack on the U.S. Nothing, nothing like this since Pearl Harbor. So Iran is watching maybe a destabilized Afghanistan isn't bad for Iran. And what's another superpower that Iran seems to have some close relations with who might send some, you know, some advisors over? I, I think yes, you know who, yes, I, who yes, I'm definitely. talking about, right? Um, I, I, again, it is conspiratorial. It might be a stretch, but it might also... Uh, now, though, 20 years on, we're hearing that Iran wants stability. It wants regional stability. But a lot has changed in 20 years. Um, I don't know. 
did, is that completely off the mark? I would say, first of all, I agree with Suzanne that uh, Iran has benefited from war and chaos in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Okay? Both countries, both on the west, northwestern side and on the eastern side of Iran, are two countries occupied by U.S. troops. Uh, uh, the United States is uh, losing a lot of money, uh, pr uh, prestige in the international um, uh, community as a uh, force for good because of all the war crimes, uh, all the problems in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, these things make the United States look bad and weak. So obviously, Iran is opposed to the uh, United States and it's allied to uh, Russia and China, so as one uh, block uh, together, they benefit from uh, any kind of uh, disadvantage or um, any kind of problems that emerge out of uh, misguided U.S. foreign policy. Uh, it's in their benefit, so obviously they would uh, uh, encourage anything that weakens United States and makes United States look bad or lose prestige, uh, waste money and resources, all of that. Uh, but then there is another point is that Iran is using uh, cultural and religious identity to uh, uh, expand its influence in the region. For instance, Iraq was a dictatorship under Saddam Hussein. Uh, Saddam Hussein was an Arab nationalist, but he still, like, the, the, the Ba'ath Party was created in Iraq by uh, secular Christian uh, Arabs. But still, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, especially in the 80s and 90s, was more uh, branded as a Sunni powerhouse uh, for the Arabs in the Middle East, uh, as opposed to a Shiite Iran. Okay? So this factor uh, played a major role uh, in that particular conflict. And once uh, Saddam was uh, gone, uh, Iraq became an open uh, playing field for Iran. Iran is now de facto the uh, most powerful entity inside Iraq. Uh, the media, the, the you know education system, uh, Iraq's foreign policy, all of it is influenced by people who are loyal to Iran. And Iran has an expansionist agenda. Iran does want to create what is called the Shia Crescent, from Lebanon all the way uh, across the Middle East to Yemen. Uh, this is uh, the Iranian foreign policy. And when we see all of that happening on, on that side of uh, uh, Middle East, uh, we look at Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, Iran is, uh, on the one hand, helping the Taliban, but they're also uh, uh, empowering different ethnic groups in Afghanistan uh, with uh, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, methods that are actually designed at creating uh, a lasting conflict between different ethnic groups. So, and, and, and Af Afghan Shias are going to fight... In exactly. Syria. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I would I would cut in here and say so. For example, when we speak about um, we speak about U.S. allied forces in Afghanistan or Pakistani allied forces or whatever in Afghanistan, the thing with Iran is that um, 
these can't just be called allied forces on the ground. Um, Iran has a very specific ideology uh, that's uh, not shared universally by all Shi'is, but, uh, you know, it's the Wilayat al-Faqih. So according to this, the, the, the foot soldiers are not just, you know, there specifically for the money. It's an ideological clash. But now the thing is, is that Iran, with regard to Afghanistan, is uh, severely handicapped. And it's handicapped because um, it posits itself as the protector of Shia Islam uh, in the Islamic world. The only problem with that is that in Afghanistan, uh, Sunni Islam is the religion of the majority. Uh, most of the ethnic groups, major, uh, except the Hazaras and the Qizilbash, most of the ethnic groups are Sunni. But uh, in, a, in order to counter that handicap, because Iran cannot appeal to the sensibilities of Sunni Pashtuns or Farsiwanan or Uzbeks or Turkmen, uh, what it does is it seeks to, you could say, uh, flex its cultural linguistic muscles, a shared cultural heritage, uh, you know, language, literature, poetry, that sort of thing. So I would say that with Iran, we have to refer very specifically to its its guys on the ground are not just there receiving money. It's a very ideologically motivated endeavor as well. And this book does not, go into sectarianism exactly. in Afghanistan it does, it any depth yeah. at all. And that, 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 I would say that's a major critique uh, because uh, uh, while it, uh, the, the, uh, when you uh, uh, take an overview of the book, there is a lot being said about uh, Pakistan, uh, different issues, but there is very little actually about the role of Iran. And I, I suspect that that's deliberate because in some ways I think the intent of this book is to be a primer for anyone who might be involved in the whole Doha process. That you can sit on the plane and you can read this book and you now have a foundational knowledge. Now, Obviously, for Afghan participants, you don't need the book. <laughs> but for others, I, I do think it does serve that purpose. Do, do you agree uh, that you can certainly find limitations, but it's very free of, and I've used this word before, but it's very free of polemics. Yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it engages in polemics too much. I do think that uh, in some instances there are generalizations, but those generalizations are not sort of uh, belied or contradicted by facts on the ground. Like, obviously, every generalization is going to have exceptions to the norm, um, but it's not, they're not gross or egregious uh, generalizations with regard to uh, sectarianism and topics of Islam and whatever, there was a passage of the book uh, with which I take major issue. And uh, this passage of the book has been uh, copy-pasted from his uh, Barnett Rubin's previous work, The Fragmentation of Afghanistan. And it's uh, talking about um, 
Dioband is, uh, what Dioband is, what its stance is on certain issues or the stance of its scholars or whatever. And I quote, uh, so Diobandis oppose, and I quote, Ijtihad, the use of reason to create innovations in Sharia in response to new conditions, the revival of which is a key, key, platform, key plank in the platform of the Islamic modernists. Diobandis oppose all forms of hierarchy within the Muslim community, including tribalism or royalty. They strive to exclude Shia from particip- participation in the polity, and they take a very restrictive view of the social role of women. Sangar, what are your thoughts? First of all, what is here being said in this particular quote about ijtihad is very problematic. Okay, uh, This uh, is based on a particular understanding of what ijtihad is. So um, for our uh, listeners, in Islam we have, this, so when I sp- say Islam, I mean the Orthodox, the mainstream Islam, the 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 vast majority of Muslims, like the eighty percent, they the the vast majority believe that the main sources of uh, Islamic uh, morality, ethics, law, and everything is the Quran, uh, Hadith. So the statements of the Prophet, Quran is the word of God, Allah, and uh, then we have. Um, what is said, uh, what is considered as ijma, or the consensus of the uh, companions of Prophet Muhammad, um, and uh, most important issues uh, in Islam that uh, defines Islam as a religion are to be found in those books. Okay, so in in the Quran, in the Hadith, and what we have in books uh, documenting the views and opinions of the companions of the Prophet. Uh, so it's uh, his household and everybody around him. Those are major, imp- uh, most important uh, aspects of Islam. Like what, what, what do you supposed to believe? How do you supposed to practice Islam, etc.? But then there is a huge uh, uh, field of matters that are related to religion and the worldly matters where there is no clear, concise uh, uh, text uh, stipulating what a Muslim is supposed to do, what uh, he's supposed to believe or whatever. So then what scholars do is they study the whole text, the whole, you know, the canon, and based on their whole understanding of all their literature, they uh, issue their views and opinions. And that is called ijtihad. So, only when there is no answer for something uh, uh, that needs to be answered, they uh, study the whole text and then they interpret based on principle of interpretation and principles of deriving rulings. They derive a ruling and then they, 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 that is the, the end result is called an ijtihad. And an ijtihad can be wrong or right. Okay? Uh, so... What, what, what is now currently a very dominant view in the West, and especially about, uh, uh, among modernists, is that they say ijtihad is also a source in Islam, so let's do ijtihad about anything that is 
actually already agreed upon. So, for instance, drinking alcohol is yeah. prohibited in Islam. They say, yeah, we should do ijtihad and uh, arrive at a different conclusion. So, it, it's a very nonsensical uh, approach. It's also, it's also very intellectually dishonest because it's an inductive form of reasoning. You're going in with the conclusion you want to pluck out and you're just, you, do you know what I mean? Like you're already going and knowing what you want and you're picking up the convenient things along the way. But there's also the thing, the fact with regard to uh, Professor Rubin saying that the Obandis oppose ijtihad, like um, Mufti Taqi Osmani, who is a Pakistani uh, senior Deobandi scholar, Islamic theologian, uh, has done a lot of ijtihad on issues, like you said, that are not clear-cut for which there isn't a correct answer. And another thing that he said that um, the Obandis oppose uh, hierarchies in um, amongst Muslims, including tribalism and royalty, uh, I would take issue with that because a lot of these Deobandis in Afghanistan, including the Taliban, would we, Sangar, would we say that Mawlai Muhammad Nabi Muhammadi was a Deobandi? Um... I would say he was very uh, inf uh, he was influenced by the Obandi school of thought because that's the most dominant and most prevalent uh, school of thought in our region. Exactly. So the Taliban, Maulay Muhammad Nabi Muhammadi, who was the head of Harakat Inqilab Islami, the Mujahideen group, these guys were not uh, ideologically opposed to the restoration of a monarchy. That's a very important point. That's so to true. Say that the Obandis oppose uh, a monarchical setup or tribalism uh, a lot of these groups were tribally organized um, and neither were they opposed to a uh, to a monarchy being uh, restored they just it didn't happen but it's not something for which you can find that there is a clear concise opposition based on ideological or religious grounds uh towards it in uh, in in ruben's defense i would say when he says tribalism maybe he means that taliban don't want to uh pick fights with other groups based on ethnicity yeah but i mean i mean um yeah that is that is a that is a valid point but yeah i would say you corrected me there yeah, and there's a memoir too. Um, I think it's one of the the works of First Draft Publishing, where a participant in the Soviet Jihad said, "You know, there were the the group that the Taliban group, and I'm using that word obviously before they were formed, but at that time." They were the group that after fighting would always resume studying and people would join the group. And if they didn't like the rigor of it, the strictness of it, uh, the scholarly nature of it, they would leave and go join another group. So yeah, yeah. nuances like that. Okay. Uh, recently, Professor Rubin uh, published a report for the U.S. Institute for Peace on the Afghan constitution and the process of possibly drafting a new constitution, which I, both sides would agree to. And 
the the difficulties involved in reconciling Hanafi and Shia jurisprudence. And I was fortunate enough to speak to someone who's a very good analyst and also a scholar, an Islamic scholar, who said, you know, this is just a minefield to go into because of the complexity of scholarship and to try to just, you know, to simplify even the language is very difficult. And this is not unique, certainly to Islam. And when I was speaking with him, we mentioned things like Talmudic study and, you know, the early councils of the Christian church. And these things are so dense. And this is the nature of debate is built in. So it's very difficult, I think, I, 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 I'm afraid things always may come down to some sort of generalization that can be challenged. And I'm looking at, on page 15, Deobandi Madrasa's taught a militant puritanical version of the sex doctrines, which were often the only educational institutions open to Afghan refugee boys in Pakistan. It became incubators of the Taliban. There's been a study done of initial Taliban leadership founders, whether they were actually educated in Pakistani madrasas as boarding students, or whether they were educated in local schools where they had contact with their families, because you know the theory is that they were so isolated from women they became misogynist. But <laughs> that is a theory that actually advanced in in academic papers. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's the numbers, you know, the, the survey of the educational background doesn't really support that. It's not so neat. So I just. I wanted to bring that up. Um, and I think where you're you're trying to pack so much information into a book that's under 300 pages long, in the interest of being concise, especially on a subject like religion, it it, it may be something that does not make everybody happy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue that I would take with regard to his description of um, Deobandi's is that he uses the word puritanical. Now, in and of itself, I don't find much of an issue with the word puritanical, even though it comes from, uh, you know, a baggage of English slash American colonial history. But the problem that I find with the word puritanical is that the same word is also used to describe Salafi Islam from Saudi Arabia. Okay. And now when a reader reads that Deobandis are puritanical and the Salafis or Wahhabis are also puritanical, they may equate the two. However, they're very different. Indeed, a lot of the stuff that Deobandis, a lot of the judgments that they will make, a lot of the legal reasonings, a lot of the beliefs would be viewed by the Salafis as uh, misguidance you know, and, and heresy. 
Mis- <laughs> yeah, misguidance and heresy. So I, it's not, like I said, it's not so much that I, because Deoband was a revivalist movement in northern India. It came about in a very uh, specific set of circumstances unique to northern India, which was to correct, as the founders of the school saw it, uh, the Islamic practice being uh, carried out in the area and essentially to, as they saw it, cleanse it of foreign Hindu influence, okay? And British. Now, according to that understanding, and British, according to that understanding, there's nothing wrong with the word Puritan. It's just the fact that in the post-9-11 paradigm, the word Puritan is also equally used to describe Salafis and Wahhabis. And then the Diobandis have very strong theological disagreements with each other. So I would say that, you know, finding another synonym for puritanical would have probably been uh, more suitable. Um, I want to wrap up. Yeah, sorry, Sangha. Sorry, uh, Suzanne, you were saying? How long do you think, following 9-11, or if this has ever occurred, that we really have, a, that there is a, an understanding in the West that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda have two distinct religious outlooks. Do you think now it's starting to permeate, you know, our, our knowledge, or is it still at the level of misunderstanding that it was? I, I think, uh, uh, Suzanne, uh, I think that is still not uh, happening, okay? Uh just before we started recording today, I was listening to a talk by uh, Barnett Rubin about uh, this uh, particular uh, topic. Um, and he was explaining how there is a huge difference between uh, Al-Qaeda and Taliban. And he also said uh, that uh, Taliban don't really want to have Al-Qaeda there. But it is against their religion to uh, betray those people. Okay? See, uh, what Ruben did in that talk, and um, uh, you, can, you guys can correct me, uh, maybe he mentioned that in the book or he didn't, but what he tried to do is to explain that these two organizations have totally distinct uh, goals and objectives and this is something that any anyone who is studying Afghanistan anyone who has uh, really spent time trying to understand Taliban knows that uh, there is a global jihadist movement that has a global agenda and believes that uh, terrorist activities are necessary in order to create uh, a uh, situation that will lead to a uh, revival of Islam and uh, Islamic uh, caliphate and whatever. This this particular trend, uh, this this ideology, is not really adopted in Afghanistan. There are some very small groups of people in Afghanistan who have flirted with this idea. There, I know personally of three uh, speakers and, uh, you know, uh, how do you say, people who propagate these ideas. Three Afghans that I know of who propagate this idea. The rest of the country 
even among Taliban leadership, if you read their literature and everything, they, they don't have this agenda. They don't have this belief system. But it is necessary for the entire world to understand this. Uh, and Barnett Rubin tried to explain that in that talk. He tried to explain that this, this, is, this is a huge difference. Uh, but it's still not really elaborated. Uh, I think that there, there is no incentive among authors and uh, journalists and politicians to uh, try to make this distinction because they say, you know what, these people, they all have beards and they all have guns and they don't like uh, modernity and secularism, so they all, they're all the same. We should all treat them the same. Uh, this is the, the general attitude, and not just among uh, Western authors and Western uh, academics and Western politicians. We have the same attitude in Afghanistan. Like people uh, inside what I often uh, call the Kabul bubble. Uh, people don't really like uh, the, the fact that I say that, but, but those people, they live literally in a... Uh, physical and and you know abstract bubble because they think that the beliefs and ideas that motivate people to join an insurgency in Afghanistan is basically the same as the guys who flew in the uh, the you know twin towers in uh, uh, New York. Uh, so this is something that really needs to start. We, we need to start talking about these issues, making these distinctions, uh, not as some people believe as Taliban apologists, but because we want, we want to have a situation in Afghanistan where we accept all the ground realities as they are, and based on those all ground realities, reach a consensus where we have some kind of stability and peace, even despite the fact that there are huge differences and huge conflicts and uh, d competing uh, beliefs and whatever. So uh, it might be very idealistic of me to uh, have this uh, desire, but in order to uh, bring peace in Afghanistan, you have to accept that you have people like Taliban in Afghanistan, that's a reality. And you have people like the Kabul bubble. That's also a reality. And this conversation about their belief system of all these different groups needs to be uh, become more, um, how do you say, mainstream. I mean, I think, I think the common denominator here is that people in the West and people in Afghanistan are people. And a large number of people uh, believe what they want to believe. They see what they want to see and they hear what they want to hear. So, like you said, if you're one of those guys that look at the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and to you it's just black beards and scary people and they're <laughs> the enemies of progress and enlightenment and civilization, then, uh, and I don't, I don't mean to be sort of confrontational here, but if you are that kind of person and you're not really interested in the facts, nothing will change your mind. Uh very okay maybe not nothing but most things will not change your mind so you know i, I think the only problem is is that there's a massive uh disparity in the narratives that are being put out there uh and so if we manage to sort of be critical uh you know critique these narratives and put forward what is what are the ground realities i think eventually more and more people will be able to see 
you know, the massive diversity in these groups. And of course, there'll be the diehard ideologues who, no matter what, will also stick by their guns. Um, I want to sort of wrap up the point of critique that I have with regard to the book. Uh, so I have about two more. So there's the claim that the Pakistanis, the ISI, supported the Taliban from the very beginning in 1994. Um, now that is true. That is true. However, it's actually, I wouldn't say Ruben is lying here, but I would say that it's ignoring sort of a reality that took place in the ground. So everyone knows in 1994, the Taliban rose up in the Loi Kandahar region, that is Kandahar, Helmand, Zabal and whatever. And um, I wrote my article on this as well. They were supported by people like Ismail Khan in Herat and Masood and Rabani, who thought that they could use the Taliban to completely make Hikmatyar's uh, lines collapse, which happened. But uh, at this point, Hikmatyar, depending on sources, Hikmatyar was um, still supported by the Pakistanis. And exactly when the Pakistanis started out, the Taliban is up for de- uh, is up for debate. So, for example, um, you know, there's what happened first was that in Kandahar, there's a little town called Spinboldak, okay. And uh, Spinboldak is the border crossing between, uh, is the crossing on the Duran line between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And on the Pakistani side, there's Chaman. Okay. And this is predominantly, uh, this area is predominantly inhabited by Nurzaish slash Atikzai, uh local Pashtuns. Now, the tal- this Spinboldak was actually held by Gulbuddin's Hezbe Islami until the Taliban attacked it and took over a massive. Uh, ammunition depot which they later used to take over Kandahar Uh, in this time though uh, there's very little evidence that exists that the Pakistanis actually helped the Taliban take over Spinboldak okay Uh, Hikmatyar accused the Pakistanis of doing so but this actually wasn't the case in fact the the Pakistanis were supporting both the Taliban and Hikmatyar until mid-1995 that's according to um, Aisha Ahmad in her book Jihad and Co., where she examines the role of black markets and uh, jihadi movements. But the point here is that whilst Professor Rubin is somewhat correct in saying that the Pakistanis supported the Taliban at this stage, it's important to note that this wasn't from their very inception. It was after they secured Kandahar and after that they secured a uh, Pakistani armed convoy that was taken hostage by warlords in Kandahar that the Pakistanis started to see the Taliban as a viable partner who could open up Afghanistan, secure the roads and secure, you know, one straight commercial roads from the Central Asian republics to Pakistan. Uh, that would be one of the critiques I have. So, yes, the Pakistanis did help the Taliban in 1994. They were also helping Hikmatyar at the same time, all the way until 1995. And that's, once again, Aisha Ahmed in um, Jihad and Co. Another critique I have uh, and this is half critique, half uh, appreciation. Um, with regard to the collapse of Dr. Najib's government in 1992, um, Professor Rubin writes that Nabi Azimi, who was the head of the Kabul garrison, contacted Masood and handed the garrison over. That is a euphemism. Um, because in April 1992, there was actually a press conference organized in Mazar-e-Sharif uh, Mazar Sharif was, and I've referenced this in my article on Ahmad Shah Masood. In Mazar Sharif, there was an armed takeover by a coalition of 
دوستم او جمعیت اسلامی شورای نظار حزب وحدت and in this um, in this press conference the reason that was given for the armed takeover of mazar was that we don't want pashtun generals ruling us okay so it was explicitly ethnically based and masud's commander was a guy called alam khan who was there in attendance now when nabi azimi went to this conference he defected to that side to the conspirators of mazar sharif so it's not like nabi azimi just randomly whatsapped masud and said hey would you like the kabul garrison no they were they were in contact uh, and i'm actually reading nabi azimi's memoirs right now i wouldn't say that he's specifically ethno sectarian but there is quite a lot of mention of ethnicity in his book and the reason for this arm taker of mazar it's not me saying or you know i'm not reading between the lines it was literally said that we don't want pashtuns here masud's representatives were there nabi azimi defected to that side dostum was there hizb wahdat was there so saying that masud was contacted by nazimi as if it was by whatsapp message after a long you know time it, it's not you know we need to be honest here they were on good terms uh, for that to happen you need to be on very good terms to hand over the entire garrison to a commander who you apparently you were fighting until yesterday i hope that professor rubin will specifically address this and i think he will once he listens to this um i'm sure you'll be hearing because i and i i guess you know in a sense this comes down to really editing Mm-hmm. how did you find i found the information in the book to be well organized and every sentence might raise a question but that question is then addressed in the subsequent sentence that there's a very good flow of a tremendous amount of information now maybe one of the shortcomings is there's just too much information to explore fully i i wouldn't i wouldn't say i would like i'm not, i'm not, i'm not here uh, implying that professor rubin is being dishonest here um maybe like where we all have we're all prone to our own biases and i wrote my own article sort of deconstructing the you said earlier suzan the mythology surrounding ahmed shah masood okay and the reason that i feel that's an important topic is because so much of what's happened in the last 19 years uh, rests on this mythological character that we've created out of a dead man okay um but i think professor rubin doesn't want to get into ethnic polemics too much but i personally feel it's really important to state that the reason this armed takeover of mazar took over as najib's government was collapsing was strictly speaking based on ethnicity that was the reason given and the attendees the attendants sorry they knew that and they were conscious of it and that warrants a um, a mention what would you say sangar i uh, do agree that uh, it should have been mentioned but then again uh, i would say that uh, uh, barnet rubin as knowledgeable and as wise as he is he may not be really aware of those small details i for one 
know quite a lot about it because, as I've said before, my father used to work for that government. Mm -hmm. I've been basically raised throughout the last 30 years hearing all the details from his side, from other uh, major figures within that government mm -hmm. of what happened. And I agree with you when you say that the revolt in Mazar against uh, the Najib regime was motivated by and large by, uh, yeah, I would say they exploited the ethnic matter. Yes, it was there. Um, uh, we have now discussed uh, most of your critiques so far, uh, but there is still quite a lot that we <laughs> need to cover, uh, but we don't have that much time, so I will try to go... Uh, through the following questions quickly. Uh, one major important chapter in this book is by David Mansfield, who is explaining the, 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 the whole uh, issue surrounding, you know, uh, uh, the opium. And um, there is also uh, something to be said about the economy in Afghanistan. Uh, now, the thing that uh, is often uh, neglected is that war in Afghanistan, the occupation and the presence of foreign troops, has a very significant role in the economy. And then yeah, we have... Ruben, sorry, if I may, Ruben, Professor Ruben states, and I think it's if there are to be a certain you know, number of things that you want to take away from this book, this should probably be at the top. War and drugs are Afghanistan's largest industries. Okay, so if if uh, Barnett Rubin makes this specific point, and then we have a chapter elaborating on uh, the whole uh, opium industry in Afghanistan, uh, what are the main takeaways from that chapter with regards to the whole uh, industry and economy issue. What what can you uh, say about that, uh, Suzanne? I think it's one of the best descriptions. I've the best answers to the question of why crop substitution did not work, why it didn't take off. I knew someone who was involved in the uh, FPAC hands program. And I think what he said at the time was, we just don't invest enough time into it because, you know, you're rotated out after two years and it, you need a longer commitment. But um, I thought Mansfield's paragraph on the difficulties, they, he says that crops can generate more net income than opium poppy, but you need to do things like, and I'm, I'm going to quote now, these are his words, trellising, pesticides, herbicides, um, that you need not, he said, and this stood out to me, improved roads, packaging, and cold storage. Well, it's not only improved roads, but secure roads, which are the most essential. And all, all, the, existence, all the existence of roads. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, that, you know, if you're going to do export, you have to conform to the rules of European Union or FDA, whatever, that it isn't 
so simple to just say, we'll grow saffron and you won't need to produce poppy. Um, so I thought that was very good because it's sort of, and then of course he goes on and asks, do drugs support terrorism in Afghanistan? And he says that the drug economy and the Taliban is more of a nuanced and localized relationship, as he says. And I think localized is very important that to just to generalize it across the entire country is just completely misrepresenting why it is so difficult. Now, I wanted to just, I wanted to, I referred earlier to Ruben's appearance on Russia Today, and I want to reference that again. I'll, I'll get back to the, the drug chapter, but he did stress in that interview the distinction between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And I think he is just, you know, tireless in, in putting that out there whether anyone is noticing or listening, but he does really try to continuously get that point across. But he did make a comment on at least U.S. domestic practice that, you know, has criminalized drug addiction and so, you know, continues to fuel the global drug market. I think there's a there's one there's a quote with regard to uh, drugs and I quote directly so with sorry before I quote directly it's speaking about the potential <laughs> solution to Afghanistan's drug problem and I quote directly the answer lies with the long hard slog of building a stable Afghan government that can secure its territory and borders and provide an economic environment where the population can diversify its agricultural base and move into non-farm income. See, what Professor Rubin has uh, has emphasized in this book is that prior to the Soviet invasion, prior to the communist uh, coup d'etat, the Soviet invasion, Afghanistan was a country in which cash was not used much. Okay? Uh, the, most of the country lived in, the rural, in rural areas. Agriculture was subsistence-based. Uh, you know, there's things like bartering existed, um, you know, any agricultural surpluses were sold, and that was that, okay? Now, with the communist coup d'etat and the Soviet invasion and occupation, uh, what you have are mass bombarding campaigns, uh, and in large part, these were intended at completely flushing out rural uh, inhabitants from rural areas. And you also had an inflow of massive amounts of cash, weaponry, uh, to help the Mujahideen at the time. Now, the answer to this became opium, okay? The answer to this became opium, which generated cash. And at the same time, whilst the supply of food is going down because agriculture has been decimated, uh, the supply of money has gone very high, which causes rapid mass inflation. So it's within that context. And that is something, by the way, from which Afghanistan is still suffering. Uh, a lot of the times we sort of hear it's sort of hailed as an achievement that Kabul is a major urban center. We're seeing major urbanization in Afghanistan. But urbanization has its causes and urbanization has its problems. Uh, its problems include, you know, poor sanitation standards of living and whatever. Its causes involve war, 
poverty, instability, uh, you know, scarcity of food, and uh, that sort of thing. Okay, so uh, uh, Suzanne, uh, when you uh, look at uh, David Manfield's chapter in particular, uh, what is, in your opinion, uh, something that the uh, chapter is uh, explaining that wasn't explained in previous books and uh, the whole literature on Afghanistan? Uh, I think he does a great job of summarizing his work into one chapter. Um, I, again, his work is much more multi-layered. Uh, so this is a, a great introduction to it. And I want to mention, too, that I don't know if you noticed, Walid, in the opium trade, no one has clean hands. So this yeah. is not just you know, insurgents benefit from the drug trade. Uh, who doesn't benefit? Who doesn't yeah. benefit? And and it comes back to the central. It comes back to the central point that um, Ruben makes throughout the book: war and drugs. War and drugs are the biggest industries. So yeah, it, like you know, the insurgents. Uh, I think Mansfield mentions a couple of politicians as well. Uh, not just those based in the tribal Pashtun belt, like uh, Golagha Shirzeh or Sher Muhammad Khanzada or Abdul Razak. He also mentions that people like Atta Muhammad Nur are also suspected suspected of taking part in the drug trade. Trade, uh, even Muhammad uh, Marshal uh, Muhammad Qasim uh, Faim. So yeah, there there really are no clean hands. And uh, once again, it just goes back to the point of how um, rife and proliferated the drug industry, opium in Afghanistan is, and how integral it actually is to the uh, function of the economy. And it, it raises the question, who benefits from the status quo? And what are the costs of ending that status quo? If the Taliban were included, it were a part of the government, if they were absorbed into the government, are they just going to join hands with others who are benefiting from the drug trade? Or are they going to maintain some sort of um, uh, virtue? Uh, there is something that I uh, would like to add. Uh, you know, the Dutch journalist Bette Dam, uh, she has written a book about uh, Mullah Omar. The book is written in Dutch, but it's going to be published soon in English. And in the book, there is a, a specific uh, part where she says that Asadullah Khaled, uh, the current minister in the current government in Afghanistan, uh, he played also a role in the drug business and that he was involved in certain uh, issues that, uh, well, uh, I, I think for a lot of the audience in the Western, um, you know, academic, among Western academics and Western journalists, is that um, uh, a lot of the attacks that occurred against foreign troops was motivated by uh, the interests of local warlords and powerful figures. 
because of the drug trade. And this is something that is very briefly mentioned by uh, Betadam, but it's noteworthy that uh, Asadullah Khaled is implicated in that. And uh, when we talk about uh, Afghanistan, uh, it is always assumed that uh, there is a drug trade, it's financing the terrorists, and if we uh, eliminate the drug trade, we will eliminate the terrorists. But uh, the more you uh, read and the more you study and the more you uh, learn about how complicated this matter is, you realize that people in the current government are, all, are also benefiting from it and they have also a vested interest in the conflict, in terrorist attacks, etc. But uh, what I would like to know is from what you have read from this book, do you think that uh, this book uh, is adding that perspective or it's also neglecting it? Yes, it is. Um, so there's a chapter on drugs, okay, David Mansfield. It's actually a really good chapter as well because it gives you a lot of um, context as to how it goes forward. But there's a chapter on aid, okay, because aid is the other issue uh, that's, you know, you know, works hand in glove with corruption. But what I think the chapter is written by a book. Professor Rubin, right, Suzanne? No, no, I'm looking for the author's name. Uh, Namatullah Bizan. Okay, okay. Namatullah Nyam, yeah. Bizan's written that aid was um, uh, basically distributed on the idea that the least secure areas would get a lot of aid, you know, win hearts and minds and all of this kind of thing. Uh, but that actually incentivized. Uh, lack of security in certain areas in order for people to get aid, in order to get certain contracts. Uh, and as well as that, there's also the fact that most of this aid, I believe, uh, Beijan writes, uh, most of this aid did not go through the government. And this was justified because the government's capacity is too weak to actually distribute this aid. So it went through non-state actors and NGOs. And this actually, what it did was it further divided the government from the society from which it was meant to rule. Because the people providing the benefits on the ground were not the government. So that further creates a cleavage between the governed and the government. So, and it's within this context that insecurity is, uh, once again, insecurity becomes more of a, fa a facet because people don't, you know, feel represented by the government or they have an actual interest in undermining security in order to land uh, certain contracts or aid. And the fact that that would involve certain politicians isn't very surprising. Would you, is there anything I missed out, Suzanne? Well, no, but it made me think of the discussion of security sector reform, that mm -hmm. having the security sectors be in the service of America's counterterrorism mission also weakened the, the, the central government, that it took violence as the, the power of the state and, you know, sort of made militias there to aid U.S. troops rather than, you know, uh, 
I don't want to, okay. <laughs> it took, they, they weren't seen as protectors of the population. They were seeing, seen as lackeys of, of foreign troops, which is absolutely terrible because then, it, again, it weakens the entire role, uh, structure of the government and how it's viewed. I think we can also relate this to um, the anti-drugs efforts as well. Um, the, you mentioned counter-terrorism. One of the things that's mentioned in this book is that up until very late, uh, the U.S. did not... The U.S. viewed uh, anti-drugs measures to be uh, contradictory with counter-terrorism, okay? Because its allies on the ground, people like Sher Mohammed Khanzada in Helmand and others were, or Ahmed Wali Karzai in Kandahar, were suspected or known to be involved in the drug trade. And so any comprehensive, uh, real anti-drugs measures uh, would actually undermine the um, counter-terrorism efforts, whereas the situation was much more complex than that. Uh, and yeah, it was seen like uh, anti-drugs, anti-opium efforts uh, were seen as uh, being an impediment towards counter-terrorism. Uh, and I think it just goes full circle. Everyone is benefiting or has a hand in the drug trade. It, it'll seem unnecessar unnecessarily obvious to mention this, but the farmers who actually produce raw opium are not getting rich. Yeah. They're, they're not the ones who are benefiting. It's further down in the chain where the real money starts to come in. Exactly. And uh, there's also the fact that we spoke about credibility of government. Uh, a lot of these farmers, as written in that um in that chapter, a lot of these farmers viewed Afghan government soldiers as just being lackeys of the West for trying to stop the cultivation of poppy uh, because they see that the Taliban, uh, you, the Taliban may not appreciate one saying this, but the Taliban weren't really taking any meaningful action to stop the cultivation of poppy, whereas in certain instances, government soldiers were. And for these people, the cultivation of poppy is their livelihood. It's how they live. So this was further seen to isolate those very farmers on the ground. Yes, yes. So uh, I think the chapter sort of addresses the larger problem of how did, how did we lose? And by lose, I also mean lose support of the population as well, or how the Afghan government lost support of the which is supported by us of course how how they failed to become a, a government that was seen as at all representative or even carrying out the functions of government uh, speaking about yeah speaking about the government um, what does um, Barnett Rubin mentioned about the current government, uh, President Ghani, to be more specific, because he has been in power now for the last six years. Uh, what are uh, major issues or major uh, points that is being made about this current government by, uh, by the book? 
I'm going to let Suzanne go first and then I'm going to, well, I have quite a, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to start by asking Waleed a question. And it, do you think that the, the, um, the national unity government is almost a bit sidelined in the, the last chapter of the book uh, that. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I, I I think so. Um, I, I mean, he does say Ashraf Ghani has made the quest for peace one of the major themes of his presidential campaign, but the the endless problems that have occurred to get to inter-Afghan negotiations might not bear that out. There was one point with regard to Ashraf Ghani. It's not strictly speaking related to what you said, but it was that in Ash- when Ashraf Ghani nominated Dostum as his uh, vice president for the campaign, uh, Professor Rubin said that um, wrote that this gained the respect of a lot of people who realized that Ghani was willing to play the dirty game of politics. Now, that was an angle I hadn't actually looked at this issue from, because uh, from what I could see was that a lot of people, specifically Ashraf Ghani's uh, Pashtun supporters, were extremely angered by Dostum being made his running mate. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that Barnett Rubin said that. Um, and it's also interesting, it's also worth noting that Rubin's written that um, Ghani tried to go through Pakistan. And that approach initially worked. It worked in so far that the Pakistanis managed to exert enough pressure on the Taliban to bring them to the negotiating table in uh, Murray, which is like a beautiful hilltop resort outside Islamabad in 2015. But as a result of that, the news broke that Mullah Omar had actually passed away and the, those negotiations were suspended. And the Taliban used that time to further... Uh, relocate their leadership to Qatar to move away from Pakistani pressure. So um, the, the 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 leverage that Pakistan had over the Taliban that uh, President Ghani sought to exploit uh, actually, you know, it it gave away because the Taliban, you know, didn't frankly didn't want to negotiate. Do you think the book? It's very open-ended as to what, assuming that a ceasefire could be negotiated, and then the next step and the, the following step. There's not a lot of speculation about what a reconciled Taliban. But I think I think that I, I mean I would I would I would in defense of the book, not to say that you're attacking it, but in defense of the book, I don't think that that's what the authors were intending i think what was i think what was intended was just what everyone needs to know about afghanistan uh as it is in this moment of time uh and on that note i think this is probably the most interesting assessment to make and ruben does not mince his words uh so he speaks about you know, the gains of the last 19 years and Afghanistan being a democracy and whatever. Uh, Ruben says, you know, whilst it has a certain level of media freedom and, you know, democracy and accountability and trans- transparency, all of these things are enshrined in the constitution. 
Afghanistan is not a democracy. Okay? And that's not an in that's not me inferring from his words. It's essentially what he's saying. Because and there are two reasons. There are two major shortcomings with regard to Afghanistan fulfilling the credentials to being a democracy. First of all, every single election it's held since 2004 has been fraudulent, has been contested. Uh, and there's been, it's no doubt, it's not a secret that they've been fraudulent because every single one of them have had documented fraud and vote rigging going on. And secondly, Ruben says that it has very little oversight over its expenditure. The reason for that is that tax revenue comprises a very small part of Afghanistan's budget, okay? The rest of its revenue is coming from abroad. So, for example, the U.S. Congress decides on a, on a case on a consistent basis over a period of time, decides the defense and security budgets, and it reviews the performance of the Afghan National Defense Security Forces. Now, as a government, how can you claim to be democratic when most of your you have no little to no oversight as to how the money is being spent the money is being spent by ngos okay or uh do you see what I, the it's you know the funding that you receive is contingent on you know how a foreign legislature uh appreciates or doesn't appreciate your performance in this ongoing fight against terrorism um there's no census information in afghanistan what that means is that there's no actual uh number of legitimate votes that we can ascertain and there's the fact that logistically afghanistan even if it wanted cannot be a democracy because it does not have the apparatus of a democracy which is a wide civil uh, administration and bureaucracy no um elections in afghanistan are a military exercise okay uh and you know you need to have a military exercise to organize these elections ultimately all of whom are flawed i i think that's an amazing summation of the facts Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and you know the question is after the all the time that has been <laughs> the time and the money that has been spent why is this? And I know there are multiple answers. There, you can't, I think, establishing, trying to establish a democratic government while you're engaged in war is not, you know, it, it's going, it's not going to succeed. It, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's impossible to do this and every reform, every reevaluation that might have made a difference just didn't seem to happen. Do you do you think that's the case? Sangar, what would you say? I've talked quite a bit. Uh, I would say that uh, the problem uh, in Afghanistan, as uh, Suzanne, as you rightly pointed out, is like uh, the whole setup. From uh, uh, from 2001 onwards, uh, was based. Yeah, it was premised on the idea that we are going to provide money, and we are going to uh, give that money to a certain group of people. And then, when uh, uh, with those ingredients, we will create a stable, democratic, uh, pluralistic, and inclusive uh, society. 
And this is uh, like this 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 whole idea is based on uh, we're going to do a social engineering in an environment uh, that has so many problems. Like Afghanistan did not go through the industrial revolution. Uh, Afghanistan uh, has still many aspects. Uh, um, that would characterize Afghanistan as a pre-modern society. Uh, so, so all these efforts, as they are do- being documented and explained, um, what you always have to remind people is that no matter how many uh, solutions you think of, at the end of the day, essentially what you're doing is is social engineering. It's, 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 it's some sort of wishful thinking that you are trying to create something and you hope that those uh, solutions and measures that you have put forward, that they will have the desirable effect. And uh, I may uh, be very skeptic and uh, very uh, critical of this whole idea, but uh, as you guys have explained and all the me- points that they are, are being mentioned in this book, uh, it's it's the conclusion that you arrive at is is that you can't just create a state, you can't just create a democracy, you can't uh, build a nation uh, according to a certain model. It has to evolve uh, incrementally, and it has to evolve. Uh, uh, gradually, uh, f- uh, from within, uh, you can't just uh, try to create it by just pumping a lot of money and uh, all sorts of other. Uh, As they would say in Afghanistan, you can't copy paste. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the book's conclusion pretty much affirms what you have both just said. The 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 final paragraph of the book. I think. Okay, so uh, we have uh, discussed, uh, I think, uh, most of the most of the points that we want to discuss. Uh, before we wrap up, we need to dive into peace process because that's obviously something that is currently very relevant. Uh, Barnett Rubin was involved in uh, this process uh, as someone who worked for the State Department. And uh, I think that uh, it is important for uh, people who are interested in reading this book is to know uh, what are the major points that uh, need to be uh, taken notice of. Uh, How does uh, Barnett Rubin assess the peace process and what are the major points uh, mentioned in this book? I think that there is no real alternative to the peace process. And I, I do, I would like to hear both your thoughts on the new administration that's coming in. My opinion is that it would be absolute madness for the U.S. to backtrack. And again, these this is not the Trump administration's peace initiative. It started back in 2010. So there's no need to say, 
you know the voices are out there. You know that they're publishing op-ed pieces. You know that McMaster is appearing on American TV. Somewhere in the government, I think the counterterrorism mission is being evaluated. I hope it's being evaluated. But if it is completely dependent on a permanent presence, then... That's a real problem. Uh, and so I, I do think that, that the process will continue. I don't think that, the, again, that, that the Biden administration is going to have any desire to go back. And we'll see if 2,500 troops are back in January. It, it seems to be what's, you know, that Trump is going to do this before he leaves office. Who knows what things will look like on the ground by February. But I hope we'll still, you'll still be here and that it, we'll, we'll hear your voices on that at, when it happens. I would say that my major issues with the peace process is the fact that the international community uh, is already placing its... As, listen, at the end of the day, we know that Afghanistan is entirely reliant on aid, and the international community knows that. And it's essentially... It's like these guys have learned nothing from the last 19 years. So do this or we'll cut the aid is basically what's being said. And one of the major problems that I have is this talk of inclusivity in a future Afghan government. And now, obviously, some of our detractors are going to be like, what? Like, this is conclusive proof that he's a, I don't know, misogynist or a Pashtun nationalist or he wants to genocide or whatever. But <laughs> the fact, no, honestly, but the fact of the matter is that what we have in Afghanistan and what Rubens actually addressed in the book. Okay, let me take a detour and go back to the book. What Rubens actually discussed is he's discussed ethnicity whilst being responsible. Okay, because ethnicity is like a Pandora's box. Once you open it, things are very difficult to put back in the box. And the, the box has been opened. But what I appreciate really about this book is the fact that there's been the attempt to sort of keep the debate and the discussion around uh, ethnicity sensitive as it is. Uh, very academic okay now the problem with the post 2001 setup we've discussed it basically throughout the whole podcast it's essentially the topic of the book the problem of the post 2001 setup is that we were told back then that the problem in Afghanistan and I'm not going to mince my words here is that one group has exercised authority over the other group since the state was formed and that one group is said to be Pashtuns okay and if only if only we had a representative, inclusive government. Our problems would be better. Why? Because all of the different ethnicities in Afghanistan would be part of this government. Sounds nice, right? It sounds, it's a nice story. It's a good story. It doesn't really actually work, though, because right now in Afghanistan, all of these ethno-nationalists that are constantly at each other's throats from all of these apparently opposed ethnicities, the one thing they can agree on is that they are not given enough representation in the government, okay? These Pashtun nationalists, they don't feel represented. The Tajik nationalists are also saying that the government is too Pashtun. 
The Hazaras feel like the government is against them. No one is happy. And yet this is the most diverse government we have ever had, period. In terms of women, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of all of these things, this is the best it's ever been on paper. And yet in reality, it's the worst it's ever been. So one thing, one thing from the chapter that I actually point, that I actually, um, I would say I read between the lines is going back to the Bonn conference where Barnett Rubin says that the Rome group so that's Zahid Shah's group. The Rome group voted for the chair of its delegation to Bonn, Abdul Sattar Sirat, to become head of the interim authority, which would have contradicted the UN, United Front, US strategy of assuring at least symbolic Pashtun leadership. Okay? Now, what does this mean? Abdul Sattar Sirat is either a Tajik or an Uzbek. What Professor Rubin is saying here is that Karzai was selected because he provided symbolic Pashtun leadership, i.e. Karzai did not have any merit of his own beyond being charismatic and his ethnicity. He was just lucky to be born into the right ethnicity, which was Pashtun. But here we go. He says symbolic Pashtun leadership. So if the leadership of Pashtuns is symbolic, okay, then we have to ask, as we all understand in the English language, who are the real leadership? Right? If Karzai is the figurehead, the ceremonial figurehead, who is behind him, who is pulling the strings, right? And so, by extension, we can say and infer that what Professor Rubin is saying is that Pashtuns, or at least a certain group of Pashtuns, were not the ones controlling the state now. Things had changed, okay? Now, who were this group, okay? Well, if we look at the makeup of this group, it involved people from ethnic minorities, uh, Specifically, the people that had uh, come from the Northern Alliance, predominantly Tajiks. Now, once again, once again, are we now saying that Tajiks have ruled Afghanistan for the last 19 years? No, we're not. Okay, because if you go to areas like Badakhshan or you go to areas like, I don't know, go to most of these areas. These people do not feel represented by their ethnic kindred supposedly representing them in the capital. Okay, so what I'm essentially what I'm saying here is that we need to move away from this idea that as long as we have people born in the right ethnicities, no matter what their competency is or isn't, no matter what their human rights records are, no matter how much blood they, they have on their hands, the fact that they have that they were born into the right ethnicity is enough to guarantee them a seat at the table. This idea, quite frankly, needs to die. I and agree. That's, that's essentially what I'll end the note. And once again, someone's going to come and say, ah, typical Pashtun. Uh, what I'm saying here is that Karzai was only put in symbolic leadership as per Rubin because he was Pashtun. This applies equally to everyone. This, inclu- this inclusivity representation facade needs to die alongside the narrative of the last 19 years. Do you think a more pronounced form of federalism would just degenerate into fiefdoms? I believe that the the current calls for federalism are being pushed by certain quarters that are just not happy that Ashraf Ghani is at the center and who possibly feel threatened that the Taliban could, um, you know, jeopardize their gains or their influence. What would you say, Sangar? Uh, I, w- I agree. Uh, see, um by the way, both of you, I asked you what uh, 
Barnett Rubin says about the peace process, but you both didn't answer me, but it's okay. <laughs> Sorry. No, okay. It's, uh, it's, no. it's, it's, uh, I don't, th the thing is, is that the book is primarily written sort of on the eve of the peace process. Yeah. So, okay. so with regard to Never the peace mind. process itself, yeah. there's not that much that's been written. Okay, never mind. Okay. Regarding your point of inclusivity, now uh, uh, I'm going to say something that may also resonate with Suzanne because you're an American citizen and you're witnessing what's going on in America right now. Is uh, uh, United States is a society of uh, very diverse group of people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. Uh, the United States as a country emerged uh, not so long ago, but it is now the most powerful state um, uh, in the world. <laughs> Afghanistan as a nation state sort of emerged around the same time. Okay, so... So back in the, in that particular era, uh, white, uh, predominantly Protestant or uh, men, slave owners or whatever, they were the founders of this nation, uh, the United States. Similarly, uh, in the same uh, era, Afghanistan emerged as a sort of nation state uh, where Sunni Pashtuns were the dominant group and they created the state as it is. So United States has gone through uh, industrial revolution and uh, has become a very rich and powerful state, but Afghanistan uh, has not. And uh, this problem uh, of, of, of lack of development and everything has many reasons and, and the problem with, uh, with current discourse on inclusivity and uh, representation is that, uh, well, Pashtuns have ruled Afghanistan for the last two and a half centuries and therefore uh, in order to stabilize the region, the country, and uh, bring on prosperity, other groups need to be in power. Now, I don't agree with this idea because um, uh, I think that uh, different groups of people uh, in any society, uh, they cannot be um, blamed for anything that went wrong in the last two centuries. Like, for instance, in America, there is this uh, idea that white people are generally all uh, benefiting from racism and therefore uh, all white people have a share in uh, the disadvantage of minorities in that country. And this idea is also in Afghanistan uh, being translated into uh, uh, non-Pashtuns are not benefiting because Pashtuns have ruled this country for the uh, last two and a half centuries. Uh, it doesn't make sense because uh, Pashtuns consist of different tribes, different regions, and uh, they are in certain aspects equally disadvantaged as Hazaras, as uh, Uzbeks, Turkmens, the uh, Pashais, the Baluch. Uh, so uh, the, the whole idea that, that an entire ethnic group 
uh, has benefited and others were disadvantaged is not true because even in the United States, uh, the poor working class white people uh, in many different regions of uh, United States, they weren't enslaved 300 years ago. So obviously they weren't in the same situation as uh, African-Americans, but it, it's not like the whole system was designed to benefit all of them. There are still many disadvantaged white people in America, and similarly, there are still very uh, large groups of Afghans, ethnic Pashtuns, who are disadvantaged. So this is why we need to move away from this idea that everything is about identity, about ethnicity. Uh, we have to think about uh, uh, solutions in terms of what is uh, the common uh, value of a society what are the common values of, of 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 these people and what are their common interests for instance uh if, if we want to talk about the peace process if we uh involve people who have committed crimes in the peace process and we as uh walid rightly pointed out uh, we uh bring certain people as representative of an ethnic group who have actually committed crimes uh, and uh, oppressed people, then we are not really actually uh, solving any problems. It actually we are makes, just ethnic, it makes ethnic conflict worse because exactly. in, in the mind of a lot of citizens, the representative of their fellow citizens is a war criminal, is a rapist, is a murderer. Yes, and this is why... Uh, I think for uh, for people who are studying Afghanistan and they want to understand how these problems need to be addressed or uh, discussed, is that we have to make this point very clear that uh, we shouldn't look at Afghanistan to a very identitarian lens. Uh, uh, because it, it's, it's not really uh, solving any problems. It's very ideological and it creates more problems when you do it. And we've seen that in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, this identity politics in Afghanistan has resulted in a situation where, uh, uh, for example, uh, it, it's very perverse. It's not about just ethnicity. It's also about women. For instance, uh, the international community demands from the Afghan government to be representative and inclusive, and they need to incorporate women in all sorts of roles in the government, and women need to be involved in the peace process, uh, and women need to participate in the peace process. But then, uh, uh, this, this uh, condition is set by international community. Uh, however, there are no real... Uh, uh, women in Afghanistan who have just as much power and influence as their male counterparts. So those women have to be put on a, uh, 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 you know, a platform uh, by others. So, so, so you create a situation where a woman doesn't have the, the, the influence, the power as a man, but she's put there so that uh, the international community, the donors are satisfied. But what does that mean for that woman? She's not being taken seriously. When she talks, everybody assumes, oh, this woman is just talking because, yeah, we have to listen to her because that's how we get our money. So, so it undermines women. 
it it devalues the, the the position of those women and we're not advancing anything we, we're not going forward in in any uh meaningful way and uh this is my major issue with the whole peace process is that there is a lot of politically correct uh uh you know uh talking points about the peace process uh but people are not uh being very genuine and honest about it and that's the whole thing even if you are within your own family uh like for instance i have uh, three sisters and if there's any issue we 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 have to address everything that bothers us in order to reach a consensus uh, reach a solution and work together and if that happens in a small family it's also happen uh, have to happen uh, on a larger scale in a society we have to be honest and genuine about how we want to uh, solve issues and uh, uh, become um, a, a stable and peaceful society. But when we talk about peace process and people constantly try to uh, shove this uh, politically correct notions on people, they're, they're only uh, creating more issues and problems. And that's not being addressed and that's not being discussed uh, and this is also something that i think i'm not going to uh, uh, blame uh, barnett rubin uh, but he's a very important voice in this whole peace process but i think that people like him should also uh, uh, be more vocal about this issue like you can't just wishfully pro promote these ideas and assume that they that these uh, ideas about peace and inclusivity that they will resolve in, into a stable and uh, you know a prosperous uh, future for Afghanistan I want to speak to that very briefly and I'm going to go back to the chapter on reconstruction and development where Walid spoke about you know the government isn't distributing aid outside NGOs are distributing it. And every single aid program managed by NGOs had what was called, and probably is still called, a gender component. So I think there is a major disconnection between some sort of ensuring of women's rights as human rights if an Afghan girl wants to go to university and study medicine, it's a social issue within her family. Will they permit that? It's a development issue in how our university education is funded and what kind of quotas exist. So you have, I think there's a separation between ensuring human rights, for example, this is something I don't know. If an Afghan woman approaches a court of law over a property issue, is there a difference in how the, the case will be heard by a government court versus a Taliban, quote, shadow court? You know, will the outcomes be different? I think that looking at that sort of scenario might be more useful than some of the things that some of the programs that are applied to promote gender equity. 
And I think, too, the media has a very, very large role in this. We are still getting articles about... I'm an Afghan woman artist and in, you know, I have kind of hipster cafe and an art gallery and what's going to happen when we know to the degree that women and children are suffering because of conflict. And maybe it's easier to process something like, you know, an individual, of course we know that it's easier to process an individual story but I, who are you really speak? Who who are journalists speaking to when we see those stories almost on a weekly basis? And when the U.S. does leave, in the event that that happens someday, where are are Afghan women going to have legal protections from violence, for example? Uh, so you know, I, I think. We haven't even started study the the how gender played a role in the entire Western engagement in Afghanistan, and I think it'll be years before there's any real comprehensive understanding of that. And I think, it I think that warrants a study. I think that warrants a study. Um, the role of gender, the weaponization of sort of feminism uh, in order to invade Afghanistan. But uh, the, the thing is, is that in the last 19 years, we've come a long way. And in the mind of the observer, and I end it on this note, in the mind of the observer, we still have a propaganda hangover and uh, like I said, whilst we've come a long way, the ideological sloganeering still exists. So we've discussed inclusivity and representation. Another one that I keep hearing, and it won't win me any friends, but I'll say it anyway, is this slogan that nobody in this war has suffered more than more than Afghan women. Now, I'm sort of a person with a very critical mindset. The moment I hear that, I'm like, according to what metrics, okay? Now, this isn't to say, this is not at all saying that Afghan women have not suffered um, in the war. Of course they have, because Afghan women constitute half of society and society as a whole has suffered through this war, okay? But this, say, this slogan of no one whatsoever has suffered more than Afghan women in this war, thus they need inclusivity, Thus, they need their representation. And once again, invariably, we find that um, who are these people that are being put forward for the inclusivity and the representation box to be ticked so we can continue to get foreign aid and talk about mutual values? Ah, it's the same unsavory characters. So there's a lot of ideological sloganeering that we need to unpack. The idea itself of inclusivity representation i don't think there is anyone that can disagree with that how we actually go about achieving that is an entirely different uh, dynamic and shocker you know a spoiler for everyone you don't fulfill representation by getting crooks from every ethnicity who would have thought right but it doesn't work also within the the, the narrative concerning women there is no figure of the religious Afghan woman. Uh, oh, no, no, no. no of course They don't that, exist. That, that, that doesn't exist. That doesn't yeah. exist. A, cons a conservative religious 
Afghan woman does not exist uh, according to the narrative. And, uh, and if she does exist, <laughs> she's internalized misogyny, in which case she doesn't count and her voice doesn't deserve to be heard. Now, I do not want to end on a negative note, but there is a question, and the book does not address this, so we're going outside of the book. But I think with the entire discussion we've had today, I I don't think it's an illegitimate thing to, to bring up. What do you think, if you had to gauge the the threat of civil war. And I know from your backgrounds, you have much more knowledge of this than most people do. Do you think that it could occur? Sangar? From what I have gathered so far is that there is a concerted effort from the side of uh, the government to mobilize uh, militias, to arm uh, groups all across the country. Uh, Local uh, warlords are being uh, invited uh, by the government under uh, leadership of uh, Amrullah Saleh. Uh, They're distributing weapons uh, because they want to create a situation where they say, okay, the Americans are pulling out, but we have enough people with guns who are on our side. This is one one major threat and that could actually result into a civil war. Uh, secondly, there is uh, uh, a lot of uh, people in Afghanistan, uh, they're saying that uh, neighboring countries are supplying weapons and resources to militias aligned with the government. Uh, now, whether this uh, uh, supply of weapons and uh, resources goes through the government or directly, I'm, I'm not really sure about that. But they're saying that people are receiving aid and support. Um, countries that are being mentioned uh, are uh, Iran and India. Uh, so we have, uh, on one hand, we have uh, a, a effort to create a um, some kind of compromise and uh, between the government and the Taliban, which I believe that is the right way uh, to get out of this uh, quagmire. But at the same time, it's true that those groups are being mobilized. Those groups are being armed. And nobody is going to arm those people if they don't have the uh, intention to go to war. So a civil war is possible, but then there is another major point that uh, I would say that also need to be in, taken in consideration is that those armed groups, those militias and all of them, they're guns for hire. They're not loyal to the government. They are not people who are uh, united or based on a common uh, value system or whatever, those people, they side with any group that gives them money and resources. And those groups exist in the South, the North, every uh, region, and they consist of all different ethnic groups. Now, uh, let's say that uh, there is a civil war. If those groups don't continue receiving resources, they will stop fighting. 
Okay, they will stop fighting, and when they stop fighting, the the the, the possibility of a ongoing uh, a war is limited. So this this is why I think it's very uh, foolish by the government and our neighboring countries to mobilize those groups because those groups only thing they can. Uh, 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 achieve is a short-term uh, conflict. Uh, on the other hand, the Taliban also rely on resources. They need to have money, they need to have weapons in order to fight against other groups. And if they don't have those resources, they won't be able to fight. So, so a major point in the whole peace process is for the international community to stop the supply of weapons and other resources to different uh, factions. And uh, as long as that happens, I think that uh, all these groups, when they don't have the money and the, the, the weapons to fight, they won't fight. But if, if there were there were militias armed by India, I can't imagine what country might aid the Taliban with, with armaments. Can you? <laughs> I mean, yeah, obviously. Obviously, Pakistan... Pakistan will will, will uh, support uh, the Taliban, and uh, uh, th- th- this is something that has happened throughout the last uh, 20 years, and even before that. But I don't think that Pakistan and India and, and other countries um, will, at the end of the day, benefit for for from endless war in Afghanistan. They won't benefit from it. And this is something that the international community uh, is the responsible, uh, responsibility of the United Nations, uh, the United States, uh, regional uh, uh, organizations like OIC and uh, uh, all, all these organizations need to reach this consensus that we should limit the uh, uh, influx of weapons and uh, ammunition into Afghanistan to any of these groups. Uh, if that stops, then uh, we will have uh, a possibility of a lasting peace. So that's something that needs to be addressed. And if that uh, is addressed, then I think that we won't have a civil war. And the only thing I'm going to say with regard to these uh, militias and all of this is that if only these people read Niccolo Machiavelli, the prince, he speaks very critically about the use of mercenaries or the fact that they're pretty useless. So, yeah, uh, if nothing else is taken from this podcast, you, the viewers and the listeners should go and read Niccolo Machiavelli in any case, who is the Don. But yeah, I think, <laughs> I think, I think we've pretty much covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we have. It's been a pretty, it's been a pretty long podcast, but the, the, the fact of the matter is that this book is very, extremely condensed with information with uh, new ways of assessing and analyzing the realities in Afghanistan not just now but over the course of the last 19 years and even before then so yeah we went on quite a journey so I really hope that the viewers and listeners who understandably uh, don't have the time or the energy to read a whole dense book I hope they got a pretty decent uh, overview of what the book is aimed has aimed for what it discusses and uh, what it hopes to leave the reader with. Um, once again, but no academic work is perfect. No academic work is above critique. 
there's not a single academic work I've read, or I don't think anyone else has read, that you're not going to have disagreements with. Uh, overall, I would rate the book seven to eight out of ten. Seven to eight. What would you say, Suzanne? I would say a 9.9 because I've read so many wretched takes on Afghanistan. Yeah, I guess guess from that perspective, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 9.9. 9.9 out of 10. And let let me give it, let me uh, give it a uh, seven because then if we average our scores, then it's going to look like we are sort of promote. We've been paid to promote Barnett Rubin's book. Uh, but in any case, in any case, <laughs> I would personally endorse the book. I recommend, I recommend everyone to read it. Uh, come to your own conclusions. Let us know what you think. It's definitely worth buying. It was worth every penny. And um, yeah, it's been a while since we've recorded a podcast, uh, but I'm glad we're back. And uh, we'll see everyone soon. For those that haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, please do so. The links to our PayPal and our Patreon are in the description. We still need your uh, support to continue doing what we're doing. We do have projects planned. Uh, And on that note, thank you very much, Suzanne, for coming. Uh, If we put your Twitter handle uh, underneath your little square, is that the best place for people to contact you on or do you prefer another method? Uh, no, that is the best place. Yes, and so thank Suzanne's Twitter handle is already there. And on behalf of myself, Ahmed Walid Kalkar, and Sangat, the two founders and operators in chief of Afghan Army, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam.